Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host, and today it's exciting. I have a great friend, a family friend. It's wonderful to have with us today a senior directional driller, Frank Sullivan. Frank, welcome to our episode today. Thank you for having me, Mark. Well, it's really exciting. I would go back, Frank, I'm, I'm telling my age, but <laughs> anyway, 45 years ago, and before that, even about 50 years ago, there were I was handing out decals, and it was around Elk City, Oklahoma, where you're familiar with, and uh, wound up, I handed out these decals that said, natural gas capital of the world. My family didn't come from the oil and gas industry, so I didn't know what was going on, but I love putting those decals there, everywhere I could do it legally, that is. We wound up, Key Club and some others put those up around town, and then years later, I became a landman and got involved in and before that, all that happened in 1969, there was a well drilled, and you probably have heard about it many times, the Green Well, South Velk City, about a mile. It was a 24,000 foot test, a little over that, and it was successful. And a lot of folks said, that can't happen. There's no way this uh, innovation technology is going to work because they really did it step by step by step along the way to learning as they drilled. And so a lot of things have happened since those days, you know, 50 years, 40 years down the road. And in steps Frank Sullivan into the oil and gas industry. Tell us about where you got started. Why did you get started? And tell us a little bit about yourself first. And then I'd like to go definitely into some things that uh, have to do with innovation and technology. Okay. Well, if I could jump in real quick and mention, well, I'm very familiar with, it's just down the road from my current home is the Bertha Rogers. I believe you're familiar with that well. Yes. I am, yes. Deepest well in the world for very many years before the uh, Russians drug their, uh, was an ultra deep borehole. I can't remember the Russian name for it. And then you mentioned the green well was a successful test well. Well, there's uh, been successful wells in Western Oklahoma for very many years. I know you're familiar with a well called the Triple T that's just north of Elk City yes. in Roger Mills County, right. adjacent to the Carpenter Ranch. And it was drilled in the early 1950s and was actually fracked back then, which most people, they don't believe me that they had fracking that long ago, but it's still a producing well to this day. So sure anyway, I just wanted to throw out those two little tidbits, especially part of the birth of Rogers. I'm glad you did. Yes. About five miles from my house right now. So. Oh my goodness. What history. Unbelievable. You saw history there and what's happened since. And that's part of the equation here is Frank Sullivan. Tell us about your journey. So my history with the oil and gas industry, my dad actually was from Arizona and came to Elk City, Oklahoma during the boom period in the early 1980s for work, as many thousands and thousands of people did from all over the country. So he uh, was a roughneck and worked for the Laughlin Brothers Drilling Company. So I'm officially a second generation oil and gas worker. I started working on a drilling rig right after high school and uh, worked my way up through the ranks. And. Uh, started at the bottom, got a drilling job, and then uh, after I drilled a little while, I uh, took a position as a directional driller. And I've been in the industry for over 20 years now. When you got started, what's the comparison now with technology when we got started? 
Well, the technology, when I started roughnecking, the technology was essentially the same technology that they've had, just a basic rotary drilling set up with what we call a Kelly and not a top drive. We drilled with uh, roller cone bits, and it was still the old technology, you would say. And so I've, in my career and lifetime, have really seen a renaissance in technology on the drilling rigs themselves and also our downhole tools, drilling bits. It is absolutely night and day difference from when I started. It's so much faster. I was looking back at some history notes of my own, and in 1993, I was at the uh, what would be the NAEP conference in the, in the long run. It was down in Houston, and we had a booth. I had a friend that wanted me to have a booth down there, so I thought, why not? We'll do it. And it wound up, a gentleman came up to the booth and visited and was very friendly and very knowledgeable and got to visit with him a few minutes. And after he left, somebody nudged me and said, you know who you were talking to? And I said, yeah, his name's George. And he said, yeah, George Mitchell with Mitchell Energy. And I thought, oh my goodness, I had those moments to talk to him and to think that looking back where he took Mitchell, and of course then it wound up going to Devon Energy and so forth, that he made such an impact. Uh, when you think about horizontal drilling, I mean, I guess you've done work with majors, with independents, with small companies. Can you describe that journey that way too? I mean, where did you start off and who do you start off with, if I may ask? Started off with a directional drilling company in 2007 called Nevis Energy Services, which is a Canadian-based company that's still in business today. It's known as Phoenix Technology Services now. And uh, actually started mm-hmm. off my directional drilling career in the Barnett Shale, Fort Worth area. And we were working for some majors at that time. That was a real exciting time. Uh, directional drilling had been around for many, many decades. But I think that the early 2000s, we'll call them, were probably the renaissance of the horizontal drilling industry. Use the mud pulse, MWD tools, and of course, our bent mud motors. And I think the technology from that point started improving by leaps and bounds. You know, as well as I do at that time, that the natural gas prices were skyrocketing. And so it was a good time for companies to make the investments and, and take the leap of faith. And at that time, multiple companies that had never had a horizontal drilling program that basically got them started from the ground up. You know, talk about the major basins of, in the United States. You've worked, you mentioned Barnett. What other basins? Uh, I know Anadarko Basin uh, and now Permian Basin, right? What other areas of the country you've been to? And I know every area has its expertise needed. I've uh, worked in the Northeast, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Worked There's a basin called the Illinois, I believe it's the Illinois Basin, in eastern Illinois and western Indiana. i uh, worked in the Wyoming. i worked in South Texas. It's the Eagleford. I've uh, worked in the Haynesville, we'll call it, in uh, east Texas and western Louisiana. I've uh, been quite a few places in the United States and drilled. But the lion's share of my experience is in, in the Permian Basin and then uh, Anadarko Basin in western Oklahoma, and of course the uh, prolific scoop and stack plays in central Oklahoma. My goodness, unbelievable experience, and that's why I wanted you on, because being a senior directional driller, you have so much experience and expertise that can be shared. And to those that are wanting to get into the industry, those are upcoming leaders, whether they're going to be, you know, landmen, you know, geophysicists, geologists, engineers, drillers, on and on, all the different areas of expertise needed to start a well, complete a well, and put it on production. Wow, it's quite a journey for all of us to have a good team. And talking about teams, have you seen great teams better than others in developing acreage? I'm sure you have. Well, I really have. You know, you mentioned I worked for majors and independents, and I've really 
throughout my career enjoyed my experience more working with small independent producers. They're usually more hands-on. And in a situation with a small independent producer, they have a lot more to lose. When you're dealing with a major or a super major, there's so many levels you have to deal through and send so much red tape. There has to get approvals upon approvals upon approvals before any changes are made. I enjoy the independent part that you can Oftentimes, I can make a direct phone call to the owner of the company and and say, this is what I recommend and this is what I would like to do. And we can implement those changes uh, on the fly, if you will, in the middle of the drilling program. I've enjoyed that part of it. Now, that being said, a major, super major, they invest heavily in technology and data analytics. And they have people in positions that are there to look for ways to cut costs and speed up processes. And those aren't without their benefits. There are definitely places, especially when developing a new field, major or super major has the resources to go in and can afford to take risks that a small independent may not be able to. There's positives and negatives to working for either one. My preference is, is to work for a small independent. And it's like I said, you know, oftentimes the owner of the company himself, the president, CEO is very hands-on. And I really like that face-to-face. And everyone gets to know everyone on a first name basis. And it's a very rewarding feeling when you can drill a good well for a small independent that's successful and makes them money. I really like that part of the job. As a directional driller, I'm not really supposed to care how the wells end up, I guess, on the back end. As long as I do what I'm supposed to do and I stay within target and get the well drilled in a timely manner. But I oftentimes like to stay in contact with the drilling engineers and some of the smaller producers I work for. And, you know, if they can, you know, I like to know what the production data was on the wells. I enjoy that. I kind of feel like that's very rewarding to find out that, you know, I had nothing to do with the completions and production part of it. I always feel good if I drilled a good well for an operator. You see the digital transformation being embraced by uh, small companies, small independents as well. And what challenges are there? I mean, first of all, I go back and going back in history. Back when, well, before fax machines, in fact, fax machine came along and then for years and years later, you know, as far as iPhones and on and on. So, I mean, we've seen such transition in my part, and I know you have too, as far as my history in oil and gas industry and how we embraced it along the way. Data management is such an important part. Analytics is such an important part. Execution. But what's driving towards a success when it comes to digital transformation and the embracing that? You know, with most things, things are cost prohibitive, but the advent of technology and real-time data, automation, actually those things, you know, they always start with the majors. Like I said, they're the ones that have the money to sink into projects like that. And all those things I just discussed are actually what's probably going to end up eliminating my job from the oil and gas sector here in the future. Right now, automation is what everyone's heading towards rigs that are that are operating in the Permian Basin that we weren't allowed to get up close to them, but through a use of a fringe drone, there was a rig that I noticed one time that only had two roughnecks on there, a driller and one hand on the rig. Everything else was automated. And that's what the industry is heading towards right now is for safety things, trying to remove people off location and go automated. So in my situation as a directional driller, where For the last 15 years, everything's been hands-on. I'm actually on a drilling site, and I actually operate the drilling equipment to do course corrections on the wellbore. Now, with the technology they have, they're setting up drilling operation systems in Houston, and guys are actually able to control the equipment from hundreds and thousands of miles away. 
And that's part of the technology that the industry is uh, embracing. And now there's a lot of the smaller operators that can't afford, and I don't see will ever be able to afford to make that step. But it is going to, as things get cheaper and more readily available, I guess that my job in the industry is there's definitely a countdown timer that's ticking down. Uh, Eventually, they will not need uh, directional drillers on location. They do now, though. (laughs) Yes. We've got to have Frank Sullivan and others out there, so you definitely are needed. In fact, when I say needed, the challenge in particular, Permian Basin, I mean, it's amazing. I keep up with activity as far as uh, the number of wells and all the things that are going on. Tell us about the activity in the Permian, because it seems to be a stronghold for our future when it comes to oil and gas and the future of energy in America, but for the world. Tell us about what's going on what you see, your vision of where it's heading. Well, I haven't worked in the Permian Basin in over a year and a half. I've been blessed and lucky enough to actually be working in Oklahoma, close enough to home that I've been able to spend (laughs) a lot more time with my family than I have in my entire oil field career. But I am going to be heading back to the Permian Basin here very soon. But my time in the Permian Basin, five years in the Permian Basin, absolutely one of the most prolific plays in the world, as you know the Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin, which makes up the Permian Basin. And I see drilling activity to continue in that basin for many, many years to come. I mean, just from a cost standpoint, I've worked for operators in the Permian that have mentioned that they can make a profit with a $30 a barrel wellhead price on the oil. That right there, you know, in comparison to, let's say, anywhere in Oklahoma, Definitely, if they have an opportunity, going to drill in the Permian Basin just because of the profit margin. And then the overall cost to drill and complete a well is uh, so much cheaper than it is in Oklahoma. The most active basin in the United States, and, and I believe it will continue to be such, unless another basin is discovered that we don't know about yet. But I don't know about the chances of that happening. Workforce development. Someone's listening to this, whether it's a young person that's wanting to be trained or go about the future, or someone that just wants to change their job description now? Opportunities are there. And how would they go about it? I mean, uh, you show up at a rig, what, what goes on? I mean, that's uh, something that I think those that are listening that are looking at a future in energy and in drilling would like to know kind of the steps to be taken. And you already mentioned there may be a, down the road at more automation and so forth. Uh, should they be looking at that? Should they be looking at more innovation, technology opportunities, digital? Kind of give a scenario, if you will, of how you see it. Well, I came up the old way, we'll say. I started at the bottom roughnecking and worked my way up, motor hand, derrick hand, driller. And when I became a directional driller at that time, that was a prerequisite for the job was you had to have drilling experience. And we've seen a huge shift in the industry that now in multiple positions in the drilling industry that uh, operators are leaning more towards someone with education. They are showing preference to uh, someone that may have an engineering or earth sciences degree. And that's kind of a trend, I think, that's industry-wide, really in any position, with the exception of laborer on a rig, roughneck on a rig. Now you can become hired and start training for a directional drilling job right out of college for some companies. And that's really being led by the major directional drilling companies. You know, just as we have uh, majors in the oil and gas, the E&P sector, in the service sector, we have the majors too, the Halliburtons and the Slumberjays. They are starting to lean more towards that direction. So it's really basically goes down to an education that's becoming very important to the service companies and the EMP companies. 
I'm not that old, but I guess a dinosaur, if you will, the way I came about getting my job. Well, senior directional driller says a lot. Uh, the experience definitely counts, and that's something that we wanted to have shared today on this episode on Energy Fellows. Your mentors along the way, I mean, and not only mentors, but those that you look up to, maybe even in the past. I mentioned George Mitchell. I'll talk about other people like Boone Pickens and so forth. There's got to be some folks there along the way that you read about, that you would said, I, I want to be like these individuals, or some individuals that really mentored you directly, if you would share that. Well, my first day on a drilling rig, we were drilling a well near Sweetwater, Oklahoma, in Roger Mills County, and there was an old company man named Leon Ellis. He walked up on mm-hmm. the floor in his cowboy boots and his baseball cap, smoking a cigarette, and started yelling at people. He was a smaller man in stature, and uh, I was in shock and awe about how this man had so much power over everyone else on the rig. And I said, you know what? I want to be that guy someday. And that was, like I said, my first day on a drilling rig. And he was a man that uh, I have no idea how many years experience that he had even at that point in time in the industry. But that was my first day on a rig, and I saw the old company man, and it just really, really impressed me. And he was a very, very, very neat man, very knowledgeable man, and he made a lasting impression on me. Throughout my journey in the industry, I really was lucky to work around some, I'll call them the old gray hairs. I worked around a lot of old men that have forgotten more about drilling wells than I think that I'll ever know. And there's, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, almost too many of them to mention throughout the years. But I've always tried to have conversations and ask questions because the wealth of information and knowledge in right now, that's really getting hard to find. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, the great crew change. Right. That's uh, all the men that started in the industry in the 50s and the 60s and even the 70s. Now they're gone or they're retired. And in strange scenarios that you may not encounter on a regular basis, those are the guys that you want to have around but they're gone or retired, either one. I hate that part of the industry that there's a huge age gap between the guys that are running the show now and the ones that were uh, working when I started. There's still a few here and there. It's so important to have the expertise to be shared. And I always say, listen, you know, always say embrace listening, which you've done. Uh, I listened to a lot of folks through the years. And now I know you're mentoring as well as you go along, which is so important. And that's why I like this part of the episodes that we have is talking about the mentoring and how to influence others and help others in the industry along other areas. You know, this is important. Those that are not into the drilling side of it hear all this, Frank, because it needs to be known, not only the stakeholders, whether it be, you know, consumers and legislators, congressmen and on and on, but for those in the industry. How does this go about? What are you looking for? How can you work closely with with those in other areas and expertise, experiences, and so forth. And so this is very vital to our industry is what you're doing, and my goodness. We thank you and all those that have before you that got to you to this point and all those that in the future, we definitely need support and to support you and your efforts. And, you know, we both have, uh, I know you're from Western Oklahoma, and I'm very fond of Western Oklahoma as well, being from Western Oklahoma. Uh, a lot of friends and family in Elk City. And what's your vision, and I use the word vision again, for the Anarcho Basin, you know, back in the day, you know, my goodness, I reflect, Frank, <laughs> on the past when you, thousands of wells, not just hundreds of wells, as far as drilling going on, that is, you know, it looked like having uh, 
far as carnivals going on around. There's so much activity, you know, going around. And my kids would go, wow, this is impressive. You know, when they were small and look out and see what was going on, it was the lights filled the nighttime uh, with uh, drilling rigs. And it was quite impressive. And then tents were all over Elk City at one point where people had to find work. And they came to Elk City in Western Oklahoma. Do you see that happening again? Or do you see more of what's the future for Elk City and Anarchal Basin? Well, Mark, I'm going to preface this by saying that I am absolutely an optimist. I've always tried to live my life like that. However, my view on the Anadarko Basin as of right now is somewhat bleak. I don't believe that, you know, with current oil and gas prices, that we'll see a great resurgence in activity in the Anadarko Basin. You know, when we look at uh, different geopolitical events, the things that are going on in Europe right now, they're in absolute dire straits and they need our energy. You know, you say America needs America's energy. Well, Europe needs America's energy also. Now, that being said, as long as we're still drilling at the pace we are in the Permian Basin, I don't necessarily think that they'll need, need our resources from the Anadarko Basin at this time or in the near future. When you drill a well in, in the Permian Basin, you're mostly specifically targeting oil and natural gas liquids. And then your natural gas, your dry gas, is a byproduct. It's a little bonus. And they're very prolific gas wells. What I see for the Anadarko Basin is personally that there are, are hundreds and hundreds of wells that have been shut in that may be opened back up again for natural gas to sell natural gas. But I don't necessarily see a resurgence in drilling activity like we've seen before, even in the last 20 years, unless the price of oil stays at high sustained levels and then operators are willing to commit to projects there. I hate telling people that. That's just my opinion. I don't believe that the Anadarko Basin will get busy unless some things change. As far as regulations, they've got to be uh, holding us back, it appears, in a big way. You mentioned America Needs America's Energy, and I have a monograph that has just come out, uh, America Needs America's Energy and its Natural Resources, talking about many areas in the energy sector that need to be addressed from natural resources, being oil and gas and wind and solar and on and on. But regulations and curtailments are really seems to be really impacting us. How do you see that in the field? Let me start by saying that, you know, just from the ground level, the field level personnel, the people in the oil and gas industry that I work with are very in tune with environmental concerns. You know, just uh, the field level personnel, I can speak broadly. I can say we're outdoorsmen, we're hunters and fishermen. We care about the environment. And that being said, I never worked with anyone that didn't try to do their best job in maintaining environmental concerns in a drilling operation. I can't say that I ever noticed anything that made me feel uneasy about what we were doing as far as environmental damage. But then, like I said, in Oklahoma and Texas, we're not really saddled with burdensome regulations. Now, for example, in the state of New Mexico, I have drilled multiple wells on state and federal land. And there are more regulations that I've seen in those areas than we have to deal with if we're drilling a well on private property in the state of Oklahoma or Texas. But it wasn't uh, bad enough in those areas of New Mexico that I really felt like it was uh, costing the operator a lot more money to drill the well or complete or produce the well. Now, my work in the Northeast, it was a little bit different. They had some very, very, very stringent environmental policies that were asinine. And some of the requirements they had did slow down operations and did cost operators money. But 
basically what it boils down to as far as regulations. I know that, you know, in an era where a lot of times they're not, uh, the federal government's not issuing drilling permits for federal lands or offshore. And, you know, that's a part of the political climate, the radical environmentalist climate that we're in politically. Thankfully, we have states like uh, Oklahoma and Texas and Wyoming that are energy friendly that are going to continue. We're going to be able to continue to drill and produce wells in those states. And, you know, in those states, we're prolific enough that we can supply the energies of the United States without having to necessarily rely on the states with burdensome regulations, environmental concerns. Frank, it's been a delight to have you on the Energy Fellows podcast. I hope to get you back. Very knowledgeable, and I thank you for sharing all this time. It's a highlight. You've been listening to the Energy Fellows podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. The future of energy depends on us. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Oh,